0: Hello, Nephew community. Welcome to Voices from the Community, a Nephew podcast series featuring guests ranging from patients to providers, representing various backgrounds and expertise. They will share their experience, perspectives, and expertise in addressing various topics across the healthcare spectrum and how it relates to kidney care. My name is Dr. Gonzalo Gonzalez, and I am joined by my colleague, Alf Carroll, Alf and I are nephrology, clinical, and scientific liaisons with Otsuka Pharmaceutical Development and Commercialization, Inc. Today, we are very excited to host Dr. Deborah Hain, a PhD-prepared tenured professor and DNP program director at Florida Atlantic University's Christine E. Lynn College of Nursing, and Jessica Prone, registered dietitian, a certified specialist in renal nutrition. They will discuss dietary challenges and concerns faced by underserved chronic kidney disease patients, relying on their extensive clinical expertise. Dr. Hain and Jessica, welcome.
1: Perfect. Thanks, Gonzalo. So Dr. Hain and Jessica, thank you so much for being with us today. So I'll get us uh, started off with the first discussion question. I'm excited to hear what you have to share. So um can you please share a little bit about your experience working with underserved patients and your efforts to promote a healthy diet? Jessica, uh, we'll start with you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for for this opportunity to come, come talk about this really important um, subject. So after my undergraduate program, um, I worked for and completed my dietetic internship um, at women, infants, and children program in Los Angeles County, this early experience really taught me so much more than I could have ever gotten out of, you know, school or anything, because I I dived right into a population of different diverse backgrounds, um, primarily Latinx and African Americans. Um, And I got to really see firsthand as a new grad just how complex and how many layers there are to promoting good nutrition. So obviously in that, in that time period, um, my, my focus to promote a healthy diet was focused around pregnancy, lactation, and, and um, healthy nutrition for infants and children through age five. After I completed my internship and board exam, I moved into the clinical realm, um, where I spent just a couple years inpatient, and then um, phased into um, the end-stage kidney disease population. And my experience was actually in an inner-city clinic um, in Massachusetts, not not Boston, but one of our bigger cities in the state um, that had a really diverse population of patients and also staff, which was amazing. So I would say my efforts to promote a healthy diet, you know, with this population in dialysis really focused a lot on helping the underserved uh, patients access nut- nutritious foods, um, you know, limit ultra processed foods, you know, full of sodium and phosphorus that we, we all know in this, um, in this area that are so detrimental to the health of folks with kidney disease.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Jessica. And yeah, you're, um, you have quite the extensive background and I appreciate you sharing. Um, Dr. Hain, we'll go over to you now.
3: Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. This is something I'm very passionate about, similar to Jessica. I've been a nephrology nurse for over 30 years, and 21 of those years has been as an NP, seeing patients with kidney disease, doing CKD education, and then also seeing those that are on dialysis, are receiving uh, kid, uh, either he, in center hemodialysis or home dialysis. And my first job as a nurse was in a similar situation that Jessica described where it was predominantly African American, Afro-Caribbean, and I was myself and maybe one or two other people were the only caucasians in this this dialysis center and I learned a lot from the patients. I learned a lot that even though I, you know, we we recommended things, they weren't always able to get them, and we're going to talk about some of those issues in the next few questions. But I have I learned a lot about working with underserved communities in that role, and it continued to that to learn as I provided care for people in various dialysis centers. Nutrition, I found, is a critical component of health promotion in adults with CKD and receiving kidney replacement therapy. So I've always collaborated with dietitians, whether it's through doing a kidney disease education program or within the dialysis center itself. I have always, I've tried to learn as much as I can because I find that nutrition is so important, but it's also important to the people that have to have kidney disease. So in the CKD classes, that's one of the things they wanted to learn most about because I think it's tangible, something they can do and they wanted to to learn as much as they could. And I'm also conducting research about healthy nutrition and lifestyle in rural underserved low resource areas. So it's really important for me to think about the patterns of eating and what they're actually have access to and really consider those socially disadvantaged persons that are that have kidney disease or are receiving kidney replacement therapy.
0: Thanks, Dr. Hain. And thanks, Jessica. Both of your backgrounds are just really incredible. And uh, we really appreciate you sharing. I want to pivot to the next question, um, We'll start off with Dr. Hain this time. What are some of the key challenges that you have seen in your respective clinical practice with trying to incorporate healthy dietary choices in underserved patients?
3: Thank you for that question. Um, first, working in the, as a nurse in the dialysis center many years ago, I learned firsthand that even though we would recommend foods for them to eat that were further you know, promote health, and now a lot of them, as Jessica pointed out, are low in phosphorus, low in potassium, low in sodium. And I found that the patients weren't always had access to those foods. So they would bring in McDonald's or other types of diet, things that we didn't recommend that they eat, those things that high in sodium, other foods. And I realized that it was because they, because they did not have access to those nutritious foods. And some of those things are because there's a lack of infrastructure that supports healthy nutrition. There's these, what we call food insecurity. And we'll talk more about that in, in, in later in the talk. And the cost of food. They may not have the money. When we talk about nutritious foods, they're not always able to get that those foods within their community. And we have a lack of knowledge about some of these foods. And then of course, there are cultural differences and food preferences that people like to eat. And of course, one other thing is, we know historically in some of these populations that there's mistrust of the healthcare professionals. So until you develop that relationship, many of the people wouldn't really listen or not listen is the right word, but didn't necessarily believe what I was saying. And so I had to develop those relationships as a nurse practitioner, as a nurse, and really find out what foods they enjoyed, what what things they they really uh, you know i don't like to call it cheating but things that they would enjoy in their in their diet and how could they eat those things how could they be safe how could we work together to be able to develop to uh, establish a good part, uh, plan for them to eat but it's really about a lot has to do with structural racism and these rules particularly in these rules, commun- rural communities that affect their health and they are not able to get the foods that we are recommending or they may not be able to, uh, as I said, they may not be available because of food deserts and they may not have the money to be able to purchase these foods.
0: Great, thank you so much, Dr. Hayne. Jessica, the same question, what are some of the key challenges that you've seen when working with underserved patients?
2: Yeah, you know, I echo a lot of what Dr. Haynes' experience is, Um, you know, I think primarily it's really revolves around access to healthy, nutritious foods um, by way of all those social determinants of health, uh, you know, things that we consider like poverty, um, lack of transportation, food deserts, but also I think even another layer to it is healthcare resource gaps. You know, if, if, if folks haven't had, you know, the, the care that they've needed, Um, prior to coming to dialysis to manage hypertension or diabetes, you know, that really gets in the way of um, patients understanding how important, you know, their diet is. And also, you know, the cultural component, like Dr. Hain mentioned, that is such an integral piece. We need to really understand what a patient's traditional diet looks like. And we need to be able to work within where a patient is at with with the foods that they can actually access and is in their um, traditional cultural culture. Um, And I think another thing that we've often seen, you know, a key challenge is that a lot of our folks that do live in food deserts in the inner city areas, like in my experience, and I'm sure we see this even in rural uh, places, that high ratio of easy to access fast foods, convenience food options that folks are running to. um, And we all know that lower cost, easier to access foods are going to be generally higher in phosphorus sodium and you know of course that that makes um, makes it more difficult to manage intradialytic weight gains and bone mineral disease.
1: Great, thanks, Jessica. Um, yeah, I really we really appreciate um, both of your insight on these challenges and um, really how to individualize it to um, the patient community that you're working with. Um, so a little bit uh, just expanding on that a little bit more, um, what do you recommend with your underserved patients who may be experiencing food insecurity or um, live in a food desert? And Jessica, we'll start with you again.
2: Yeah, I mean, we just discussed like, you know, the the high ratio of unfortunately, the the fast food convenience foods in, in places like food deserts. So those are really tricky. Um, you know, I, I try to really First of all, collaborate with social our social worker on the team um, who could be keyed into area resources that might be within walking distance for patients. Um, a lot of times there's local churches that might prepare a well-balanced meal, even if it's once a week, um, or has, has their own food bank if they can't get to, you know, another food bank. Um, there's always community gardens and farmers markets that sometimes folks can get to. So knowing those types of community resources is really important, and and keying in the whole team to make sure we're aware of those things is really important. Um, knowing where patients are purchasing foods from and helping guide them on the best choices, even I found I found that for myself to be like a pretty simple way to to help um, help folks make good choices. Um, For example, there was a Dunkin' Donuts in a convenience store right outside of my dialysis clinic. I know I'm not the only one who has this experience. So on occasion, I'd go in and just check things out, take stock of what's there, um, and and try to provide healthier swaps for, for folks. And for food insecurity, um, again, food banks, you know, really provide some nutritious, shelf-stable foods. I think often we think of salty canned goods and things like that and ramen noodles, but there are going to be some options, whether it's oatmeal or, or canned beans that patients can rinse or peanut butter and things like that. Um, so when folks need to access a food bank if they're if they're expressing some food insecurity, then it's really important that we kind of guide folks on best choices when they are there. They do get to generally pick and choose at most um, food banks what they want to take home. Um, and for those who might be eligible, there is um, the option of medically tailored uh, meals that might be covered by insurance um, or for our senior citizens like a senior lunch program or meals on wheels. They may not always be culturally appropriate, but when faced with hunger versus a, a hot meal, sometimes people are willing to um, willing to accept it.
1: Thanks, Jessica. Yeah, th- those were some great tips. Yeah, I think collaboration with the, you know, not only the interdisciplinary healthcare team, but also working with your available uh, resources, whatever they may be in the community is important. Um, so we'll switch over to Dr. Hain. Uh, any insights on on this topic?
3: I agree with everything Jessica said. Thank you for those comments. So I'm going to add a few additional. Uh, One is really collaboration with our nutritional experts to engage in community partnerships to address the issues within that community and identify possible strategies to to take care of those uh, issues that they face. There, when we partner with our community members, we can start to recognize where could these food banks be, what areas, where, how can we partner to provide the appropriate nutrition for them? What I had a student, a DMP student of mine, do an evaluation of food banks within in Florida, and she found and to look for their ability to have specialty foods for people with kidney disease, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. And we looked to see what capacity they had. Did they have the staff? Did they have the room? Were they able to get some of these foods? And we found that not many were able to do that. So I think we need to partner to say, how can we work with these food banks to provide and increase the capacity to provide these type of foods for the communities that are in need? there there i was on a patient uh not a webinar but a conference and one of the patients during uh, for that ckd and one of the patients said that she went to the food bank during covid to get she didn't have she had didn't have enough food in her home and they did not have the specialty foods that she needed. And so she just ate. and as Jessica said, hunger versus doing the right thing, you know, eating the the nutritious foods, obviously hunger is more important in making sure they get food in general. But as a community, as a kidney community, how can we partner with Members within our own communities to try to address to, to provide these specialty diets? How do we provide that, provide that infrastructure, which is something that is lacking often in these communities as they face structural racism and other issues with poverty, as Jessica said, transportation. And so um, I just I don't wanna keep talking about my research, but I am working on a project to try to really work within these communities and partner with them to see where are these needs. And in one of the rural areas here in Florida that I'm working with, they only have fast food restaurants and food and grocery stores that do not provide healthy nutrition. And the cost is a big deal of how do they pay for it if it's there and if it's a no demand, are these grocery stores going to supply that? And the other thing is really, when you work with people within a community and you're trying to consider food insecurity, how to address these food deserts, you have to think about sustainability because that is a really a priority when working with community members. I've had people as I go into these communities say, don't just come in here and come up with an idea and leave us with nothing. It has to be sustainable. So therefore, working with the communities, partnering with the communities to find out what can we do? How can we address these issues? How can we as a kidney community do this? I think we all need to think about that and um, discover the best ways, the best practices uh, to, to accomplish this.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. Hayne and Jessica. Those are really great insights. And Dr. Hayne, you actually just reminded me of, of some of my, my previous patients in Detroit and, um, you know, wanting to opt for high caloric foods, such as, you know, a candy bar or a cheeseburger versus maybe opting for, you know, the apple or, you know, the banana or, you know, another, you know, fruit or something. So, but, I um, want to, want to shift gears a bit and, um, we'll start with Dr. Hain. Uh, Could you please discuss the concept of cultural competence and why it is particularly important to consider when suggesting dietary changes in underserved patients?
3: Absolutely. Thank you for that question. First, we want to basically just give a little overview of what is cultural competence, which is that set of congruent behaviors, attitudes, policies, that come together in a system or agency and among professionals to enable this, this agency or system um, to work effectively in cross-cultural situations. The U.S. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services defines it as a level of knowledge with skill, knowledge-based skills required to provide effective clinical care to patients to a particular ethnic or racial group. So we really want to have, when you have cultural competence, it's that knowledge and skill that can influence those cultural beliefs, values, and health behaviors. And you want to be able to communicate non-verbally and verbally. And in some instances, you may need a professional interpreter. We, are, we go to Guatemala on a, uh, we were going into COVID and we're going back in February and many of this bringing nurse practitioner students and many of them do not speak I Sp- not, not speak Spanish, so we have interpreters there, but we have interpreters that will help uh, help us understand as well as what the cultural needs are. So when we're talking to people, we understand that some words might not be appropriate because they won't understand them. So we have to change our language. And when I was working in the community, uh, with, in the rural community here, and I asked them about structural racism, somebody in the community said, I wouldn't ask them about that because they don't really understand what that means. So you have to be clear in what you're saying and, and make sure that it's something that they will understand within that culture. And you need to, come, it's coming to know the person, as I said before, their values, beliefs, and wishes, and not assuming that because they're from one race or ethnicity or culture, that they would like one particular food. You want to make sure you consider some of the factors that go cultural competence, race, ethnicity, as we know, acculturation. So someone who came here as a first generation from Asia, from a, a Latin country, may be very adhering to that very cultural diet that they've eaten in their country. Whereas if you've got someone born here raised here they may not be as much adhering to that type of diet so we need to think about that we need to think also socioeconomic status religion spirituality and education what is the educational level of that person and it's important for us to have cultural humility which is that lifelong commitment to self-evaluation and self-critique and it recognizes and works to fix the power imbalances that exist between providers and patients and develop mutually beneficial clinical and advocacy partnerships on behalf of individuals and populations. So we need to understand that these differences exist and respect these differences and accept the person's worldview, that person, what they feel that is important for them to eat you know, I, I, I had one woman in uh, from Jamaica when I was a dialysis nurse and she would not talk to me. And I knew the day that she accepted me, she liked me really basically was when she brought me in food. That was her way of showing her appreciation. So understanding that and, make, and being aware of your own cultural beliefs and of course, we always have to think of implicit bias. That's that unconscious belief that we have. And, and this is through self-reflection. So taking that time to be aware and really coming to know persons and, and what they like, what matters to them is important.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Dr. Hain. I really appreciate you providing, you know, those definitions for cultural competence, but also looping in, you know, those important contexts behind the cultural humility and implicit bias as well. I want to turn also to to Jessica with the same question, Jessica, um, you know, this concept of cultural competence, uh, could, could you also kind of elaborate and and why it's important uh, with the work that you've done with your underserved patients?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Dr. Hain covered like the concept so, so well. I don't think I can top that. That was amazing. Thank you, Dr. Hain. Um, I can I can express what it means to me maybe too. It, I, I think as a clinician, cultural competence means valuing the diversity of our patients and being open to learning about different cultures, beliefs, values, languages, and customs, and being respectful and responsive to each individual's unique needs so we can provide fair and equitable care. Um, we can't make and suggest dietary changes um, without first understanding where the patient comes from. And I feel like it's particularly important to consider cultural competence when it comes to making those suggestions for food and nutrition, because our dietary patterns are Largely based on not only what region of the world we come from and the foods that are available there, but also, you know, religions, traditions, beliefs, customs, those are all a part of what dietary choices we make. Um, So we have to honor and be willing to learn about people's traditional diets first before we can start making recommendations so that it can fit into their life. Um, So what what might that look like in our CKD population Little tweaks, like perhaps um, in in folks that maybe come from a place where they use a lot of uh, tubers or root vegetables, leaching potassium from those foods to lower the potassium content, reducing portion sizes of certain custom foods like rice, right? And, um, rice, you know, often in many cultures is, is a, a large, you know, a large portion of the plate. So if we're trying to manage diabetes, um, just talking more about balancing the plate with more vegetables and lowering the amount of carbohydrate and looking for any other opportunity to make small swaps, um, versus a complete overhaul of a person's traditional diet is, is key.
1: Thanks, Jessica. Um, yeah, I love that, that point of uh, making small tweaks. I think a lot of times, um, you know, having patients make such a dramatic shift, it, um, a lot of times doesn't work for their lifestyle. So I really, I really love that approach. And, um, also appreciate the, you know, your thoughts around cultural competence. I mean, it's just so important for us as healthcare professionals to really understand this when working with patients of different backgrounds. So going to our last question, what would you say some of the biggest tips that you wished other providers should know when trying to implement healthy dietary changes with their underserved patients? And we'll start with Jessica again.
2: Yeah, I mean, I gave this a lot of thought, you know, as I was preparing to to have this discussion. And I think my tip is really simple. I think it's to kind of in the spirit of motivational interviewing, be curious. Be curious about your patients and ask questions. I have found in my practice that people are really willing to talk about what, what challenges they're facing, what traditional foods, especially when we're talking about foods. Foods is such a kind of a common ground that we can all we can all experience and, and to discuss like, Oh, what, what did your, what did you make last night for dinner? Um, is a commonality that we can all find, you know, ways to, to connect with. Um, and then we learn so much more about, okay, what, what are patients actually eating? What barriers do they face in accessing healthy foods? Um, and you know, again, if, if you're, if if patients are from a culture that you are not familiar with ask about it you know patients are really willing to share um you know especially if you're approaching it from a real non-judgmental place i've also had the you know the privilege to work with colleagues from various backgrounds, um, and asking them, like looping them, ask you know staying curious with them to asking them about their experiences, about their traditional diets, um, especially if there is a language barrier where it is difficult through a translator line to really dig in. Um, oftentimes, staff members have been such a um, a vessel of knowledge for me in 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 get, getting some insight into what traditional foods look like. Um. Asking questions and learning as much as we possibly can can help us understand where the patients are at um, and really enable us to provide the best possible care. Uh, In addition, I think as clinicians, we have to be involved, like Dr. Hain mentioned, we really have to be involved in policy change. These issues are systemic and are not going to change overnight. So the best we can all advocate for fair and equitable care, um, the further and quicker we're going to get ahead with all this.
1: Thanks, Jessica. Yeah, I think it's so true. Really, you know, taking the time to get to know your patients and um, working as a team is key. Um, and, you know, it's success for, um, for them as well. Um, and really great point on, on policy changes. That's, I think, an advocacy. That's um, something that not all of us have, have worked in, but it's super important that we were all aware and, you know, we know where we can kind of take action. Dr. Hain, now uh, switching over to you, same question.
3: Thank you, Jessica, for your comments. I agree with everything you said. I think it is very important. I think as you go in and you start talking with your patients, be humble and have respect for the person and what they have to say and be aware that when you're speaking to someone that even if your beliefs are different, it's really important that we respect what the person is saying and honor what they're saying and try as best that we can to avoid labeling them as non-adherent, non-compliant and discover ways that we can actually Work with them to find, to collaborate with them to to achieve the goals of health. And how do we do this? We take the time, as Jessica said, sit with the person, asking questions, come to know who that person is and be aware and respond to the inequities in your community or in that community that you're caring for. Maybe you don't live in that community where you're providing the care, but be aware of what some of them are by knowing what the social determinants of health are and discovering the needs of the community by partnering with them. Food insecurity be, is still a major socioeconomic problem. It it is that disruption of food intake or eating patterns because there's not enough money. There is lack of resources in the community, and it can arise because of hardships, of economic hardships, particularly in a time when people don't when they've lost their job or they have health conditions that now they're unable to work at this time, or they may have a family member. So you need that may be ill. That's the provider, and so how do we how do we address some of those issues that they're facing. It's really important. When I first became a dialysis nurse, we would call patients non-adherent, non-compliant, and we would argue with them. You drank too much fluid. You, you, you ate this. No, I didn't. Yes, your lab show you did. We never, And then I realized this is not a way to talk to people. It is really sitting down and understand that people live with this every day. And so when we're living with kidney disease and we're on dialysis, look at what these people have to live with. And yes, of course, sometimes they're just not going to eat the things that are best for them. How do we teach them to do that without affecting their, causing more harm to them. To them. So how do we keep, I like to say, how do we keep you safe? I don't call it cheating. I just say, you know, how can you have the things you like to eat and be safe? What can we do? And some of the patients are gonna do it no matter what, if you don't build that relationship with them, which is respect and trust. And so my patients, when I would walk in as a nurse practitioner, often before I ever saw their labs, they would say to me, hey, Debbie, uh, my phosphorus is gonna be high. And I'm like, oh, okay, um, what happened? Well, I went out to dinner and I, fought my, I fought, forgot my binders. Well, what would you? What can we do about that? Oh, well, I already know I got it. And they knew what to do. So I didn't have to educate them again. And education is a very important thing. But when they know this information, it becomes more like lecturing to them. So open that door to, yeah, sometimes these are choices you make and how can we help, how can we support you on this journey? And I wanted to really say, you know, avoiding that medical, jargon, and just really taking that time, as Jessica said. And I wanted to say one last thing before, two things. One is finding out what matters, what they like most, and coming to know that person, as I said before. And one last, the last statement for me is change starts with us. Alone, we are not able to change the world. And I mean us, the kidney community. And together as partners in the kidney community and our communities we serve, we can influence policy and practice. You have to be the voice of those that don't have a voice and be that, so we can be that, we're not the change agent alone, together we're the change agent, to increase, to really change and improve that public health capacity, to focus on those social determinants of health, such as poverty, housing, food insecurity. Very important to consider these things and how we can have, be that voice of some of our patients who do not have that voice. We know we have very active patient groups and thank goodness for them. They're unbelievably unbelievable people representing our patients. But how can we get our patients involved in groups within our community if they want to be? But as providers as as and as I agree with you elf it is a team effort. It is not one alone. As I said, it is a we. We as a kidney community really need to address this and look at how we can facilitate change, how we can collaborate with community partners, how we can collaborate with our patients and our, our, our partners within our, our, our work environment to really improve outcomes for our patients that we care so much about. So thank you for this opportunity.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hain. That was such a, such a great way to uh, end our podcast for today. Unfortunately, um, we have run out of time, but um, I'd like to send a special thank you to Dr. Hain and Jessica for your expertise. We loved having you today and I'm sure um, our listeners will as well. Um, And thank you to the NEPHEW community for coming to our podcast today. Uh, We hope you learned something. We sure learned a lot, um, and we loved the robust discussion. Um, So see you next time on our Voices from the Community podcast series.